Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. I wasn't here last week because I was working, so apparently I was, I was counting on Elijah on Mount Carmel being like, having been done this big preach and exposition. And then I spoke to my wife last night, she was like, it wasn't on that last week. So I was like, oh, okay. So we have to do a very quick, very quick run through of Elijah's victory at Mount Carmel, because it kind of runs into what I'm going to say today. So is anyone familiar with Elijah on Mount Carmel, the province of Baal, show of hands, so I know how much detail to go into. Okay, so essentially, just before this scripture... Elijah has what he kind of in the Bible is most famous for. He sets up this showdown on Mount Carmel between himself and the prophets of Baal. Baal is this pagan god that the people of Israel have been worshipping. And Elijah basically says to them, okay, you've been wandering between the middle. I'm going to set up this showdown between myself and 400 prophets of Baal for you guys to make your mind up. We're going to call for fire to fall from heaven. And whoever, whoever's god does this is the winner, essentially. So he sets up this showdown. Obviously, the prophets of Baal fail. And Elijah calls for fire from heaven. Fire comes down, and it's this tremendous victory. It's one of the things that when you look at Elijah, he's kind of known for this spectacular kind of display of God's power. And it's this um, incredible victory. He arranges this demonstration. um, But when soon as word gets back to the queen of Israel, it goes wrong. um, Because Jezebel, who's the queen of Israel threatens to kill Elijah, and he runs off. So, there we go. I'm just going to read through this opening, the opening scripture. So it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah, saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Basically, I'm going to snuff you. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And he went into a cave and spent the night. So what you have is Elijah wins this incredible victory that seems to be the pinnacle of his whole career of ministry. And it seems like God is, he's poised to kind of, or God is poised to do this next big thing. And then his life is threatened, and it takes one threat from someone to send him running into the wilderness. And I've always wondered when reading this scripture, and I'm probably, I suspect I'm not alone, which is, how does Elijah go from here to wanting to sit under a tree and die in the wilderness so quickly how does he go from seeing the absolute pinnacle of God's power to running off into the wilderness for 40 days Uh, there's a little map here for those of you who like that kind of thing so right at the top here where the uh, red line is here that's where he runs for the day down to Beersheba 
he has a snack there that Lord gives him, and he goes all the way down here where the blue is to Mount Horeb right at the bottom. So to say he's you know done a runner is an understatement. He's literally pretty much gone half the country right down into the middle of the wilderness and the desert. So I'd say he's pretty scared. So how does God go from seeing Elijah, sorry, go from seeing God work so spectacularly to so spectacularly losing his nerve and running into the wilderness? Now, I was, I've been having a bit of a rough time at work, is the example I'm going to use, um, and I was pretty miserable uh, and pretty run down, and I was spiritually in every way finding it really hard. And I got in my car to go to work. It's about a 20-minute drive for me to get to work. And my little silver Toyota Yaris. And I began praying as I got in the car. And I literally, I prayed like I've never, I don't honestly think I've ever prayed like this before. I was literally, I was shouting in the car. I had worship full blast. I was declaring things over my workplace. I was declaring God's authority. I was declaring that I was going to go and absolutely smash this day. I was declaring, it must have looked incredibly weird for whoever was driving next to me. There's this bloke in a Yaris doing this in his thing with worship blaring and you know, the, the it's the equivalent of like, as God's fire fell on Mount Carmel, I feel like God's fire fell in the little Toyota Yaris and was filling it up and there's probably smoke coming out. And I, re- and I got to work and I got out of the car and I was absolutely spiritually pumped. I mean, literally, I, I was virtually going in, you know, speaking in tongues and quoting scripture, which in my workplace would have been a little bit strange. I'm the only Christian, so I probably would have got some looks. But I was absolutely, sincerely full of the spirit and ready to go. I was in work for an hour and felt completely miserable and deflated. Completely miserable. It took me an hour to go from here down to here. And how many of us, by show of hands, you don't have to put your hands up if you don't want to have been in a similar situation where you felt spiritually on top of the world for it to just go like an absolutely plummet. And it's, it's, it's such a strange thing. Like, How does that happen? How can we be so switched on for God? How can we so full up and then just plummet at the same time? And I think the answer is in these next couple of verses I'll explain. So I'm going to read the next part of the scripture. It says, And the word of the Lord came to him. So he's run the 40 days. He's on the mountain in the wilderness in a cave. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Sounds about right. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Fairly miserable, bit of a complaint there. There seems to be something very human about how fickle we can be in relation to God. There's a scripture in the New Testament that talks about when we are faithless, he is faithful. And it's a good job, I think, a lot of the time because there's something about 
when God demonstrates his power in something that can be quite dramatic, you, everything in our logically in our head thinks that we should respond to this. We should be overwhelmed. We should be overawed. We should be on our knees. We should be never kind of losing trust in God ever again. I mean, can you imagine seeing some of the things you've seen in the Old Testament? Logically, you would think, surely no one would ever lose faith in God ever again. But it's not how it works. And the first point I kind of want to bring out... Whoops. Not dropping my notes all over the floor. There we go. Is we mustn't rely on the spectacular to sustain us in our walk with God. This actually comes from a song that says, you know, God in my walking, God in my breathing. Anyone heard that song before? Maybe not. But I've decided to put God in my plodding because God in my plodding is kind of, it's quite unspectacular and quite mundane and it's just, you're just walking along and going through things from day to day. But I believe it's demonstrated in all of Scripture and in human nature that we're at best inconsistent with how we respond to demonstrations of God's spectacular power. And we shouldn't really be surprised at Elijah's reaction in fleeing to the wilderness, even after this incredible victory that he's won, because at the end of the day that we would do the same. When you read verse 9 to 15... And when we're just what we've gone through, Elijah's complaint in verse 10, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. No arguments there. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. True. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So this is the first moment. This is before God appears in the mountain. This is before the fire, the earthquake, and the wind. And after Elijah says this, God tells him to stand on the mountain before him. And what follows is spectacular. The earthquakes, fire, wind, rocks are shattering down the mountain. You can imagine how kind of awe-inspiring that would be. Um, and Horeb, where Elijah is at the moment, uh, is the same as Mount Sinai. So where Moses gets the Ten Commandments from God, it's widely considered that this is the same place. And when you see Moses on Sinai, it's the same thing that God is on the mountain and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's crashing and the sound of trumpets and the Israelites are cowering at the foot of the mountain. It's this incredible, spectacular display. And what's the effect of this display on Elijah? There's a whisper, there's a gentle question. And what's his response to the display of God's awesome power? I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. It is word for word exactly the same complaint as he did before God's display of power. It's exactly the same. The whole display of God's power has left Elijah unmoved in his heart. He complains at the beginning. He sees this incredible display of power, and he repeats exactly the same complaint afterwards. So there's something about God moving spectacularly that doesn't change people's hearts. You see the same with Moses on Mount Sinai when he's taking the Ten Commandments and he's up there and there's thunder and there's fire and the people are cowering at the foot of the mountain. It's this incredible display of God's power. And Elijah, uh, Moses at the top of the mountain and the Ten Commandments have been written out by the hand of God himself. And, and Moses comes down the mountain and he's got these tablets and he's bearing God's tablets, God's word, the basis of the entire law, the prophets, the basis of what Jesus comes to himself. And he comes down the mountain after this display and the Israelites are dancing around a golden calf. It's not enough 
just to have a display of God's power. We need something in our hearts that affects change slowly, day by day. Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments to give the people of Israel a law that's written on stone. When Jesus comes, he came to give us a law that's written on our hearts. His signs and wonders are part of Jesus' ministry, and he expects it to be part of ours. I'm sure people say he's prayed with people for, to be healed, pray for people's hearts to be opened. But Jesus also rebuked people who wanted to see signs before believing in him. When people were poking him for a sign, he says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. I'm not giving you one. It's not about the spectacular displays. When Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he goes away the next day and they come and follow him and they say, where were you, Lord? And he says, it's not because you believe in me. You want some more food. Jesus is aware that, that what's in our hearts doesn't respond to great spectacular things. We need something of God inside of us to change our hearts, to move our hearts, to follow him. And we must bear in mind that it's the day-by-day work of the Holy Spirit making us more like God that will change us and will change anyone who chooses to put their faith in Jesus. That same power of God on the mountain that shatters rocks, that is in the wind, is in the fire, is in the earthquake, is in the thunder and the lightning and the trumpets, that same power now lives within us, in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and it's demonstrated through us when we seek to follow God with all our hearts. So... While I'm all for healing and signs and wonders and the spectacular, like Jesus did, he didn't trust in those displays to change people's hearts. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's God living within us that changes our hearts, that day by day we pick up our cross and follow, that day by day we're changed slowly, plodding along with God. (laughs) Thanks, Ruth. (laughs) Um, and this one's comfort or instruction. And I said this because when I got the, the notes for this, which were very good, by the way, from Lucas, and we have like one, two, three, four, and who's doing what. And quite often when it, this scripture is used an example of God comforting Elijah. So God goes under the, Elijah runs to the wilderness and sits under the tree and sits down and says he wants to die. And God brings him some food. There's a great meme online that says, Remember that one, I think it's something like, remember that Elijah was so mad one day, he sat down under a tree and said, God, I want to die. And God said, here's some food, here's some drink. Why don't you lie down and have a sleep? And Elijah decided things weren't so bad after all. He said, never underestimate the spiritual power of a nap and a snack. Which I think is absolutely right. But we think of it in terms of God speaking to Elijah gently, um, on the mountain rather than through the wind or the fire of the earthquake, that it's God being gentle and it's God comforting Elijah. And I think that is absolutely true. I think that's one of God's attributes throughout all of Scripture. Jesus is described as our wonderful counselor, so I'm not disagreeing with that at all. But I think that in this pattern of how God deals with Elijah, the pattern I don't think in this is just comfort. There's a pattern of instruction that God gives Elijah which helps to pull him out of this dark spiritual place where he's found himself. And it's something that God's been speaking to me personally recently, and particularly starting a new job that's quite difficult, that's quite hard, is that there's times I've been guilty of kind of using God as like a comfort blanket God, which is that I don't, 
I'm not spiritually disciplined. I don't really follow. I don't walk step by step with God. But when something goes wrong, we want the comfort blanket God to come and, you know, stop everything and protect us and look after us and, and give us comfort. And you see that in the Old Testament again and again. It's again, we're human, we're fickle, that it's what we're like. Um, and God's really convicted me of that in terms of walk with me step by step, day by day. Don't just run to me for comfort when things go wrong. And you see this when the first time Elijah's under the tree and he's sitting there and he says he wants to die. God provides food and drink for the journey ahead and it breaks him out of this mindset and he goes into the wilderness on the mountain of God to seek God. But God's instruction is, Elijah, he notices he doesn't actually reply to Elijah. He says, I want to die. I can't believe it's all gone wrong. I'm the only one left. He doesn't say, oh, Elijah, poor Elijah. Come here, let's have a, he says, get up. Eat food, eat your drink, lie down, have a nap, right? Get up, get more food, get more drink, because otherwise you're not going to have the strength to get into the wilderness to come and meet with me. It's instruction. It's not just comfort. He tells Elijah something practical to do to get on with where he needs to be. And the second time when Elijah's on the mountain complaining, as we've read, God commands him to go out. He says the complaint. He says, I'm the only one left. Everyone's torn down the prophet, the altars. They've killed all the prophets, and now they're trying to kill me. Again, what God says is, right, go out on the mountain. Go out on the mountain and stand by the mountain I'm about to come by. It's the instruction. I remember, for those of you who don't know, I suffer from epilepsy. Um, and in May 2015, I had a seizure for the first time. It's not very nice. Completely out of the blue, no history. It was really quite shocking. And when I, the next day, and I was complete, my head was completely gone, I went to pray to the Lord just to see what on earth was happening and the Lord told me to walk down to a local park and go for a walk and a pray. This is kind of a pretty life-changing event that's happened. And I walked down to the park, and the second I walked through into the park entrance, he just spoke through his Holy Spirit. It's instruction. God's waiting for me in that moment to obey. I could have prayed anywhere. Elijah could have prayed anywhere. He doesn't need to run 40 days into the wilderness to go to the mountain of God. But God has got him there. He's told him to go there for a purpose. He's told him to come out on the mountain for a purpose. It's instruction again. And the third time is, and I think it's the most interesting, because God gives seemingly simple instructions that have an incredible impact for Elijah's ministry, which is this one here, the very last one, the third time where it says, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram, Anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. I'll leave that because it's not very nice. Uh, and this is, this is um, what God instructs him. He basically says, anoint a new king in Aram, anoint a new king in Israel, and anoint Elisha, who's the prophet, who's going to come after you, whose spirit of which a double portion you'll inherit. It sounds like simple instructions, but the amount of vision and the amount of weight behind that is actually quite incredible. But again, it's instruction. It's following God's instruction. After Elijah moans the second time after, the, after this spectacular display, God tells him, do this, do this, go here. Right, off you go. And the point is that not that God doesn't comfort us, because he absolutely does. But sometimes we're in a dark spiritual place and we're really low and we don't know what to do and we don't know the way out. And we don't know what God's doing. But what I'd encourage us to do is seek God's instruction in it. Do seek God's comfort, absolutely. 
but seek God's instruction. Ask him, what does he want you to do? Because very often I've found in my life, and I'm sure other people have too, that God can give you an, an instruction that seems simple that can be the beginning of pulling you out of a very dark place spiritually. And it's really important that we are listening to God when we seek his comfort and when we're having a moan, which is perfectly fine to moan to God about things. But make sure we listen and we pick up on something that might just pull us out of where we are. And the very last one, which is much shorter than the rest of them, is the last verse in this scripture, which I think sometimes gets overlooked, which is the one at the bottom here, where Jesus, uh, God says, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Basically, there's fancy words for saying, Elijah's not on his own. Because if you look at Elijah's complaints, it's, I'm on my own, I'm on my own, I'm on my own. I'm the only prophet, I'm the only one left, I'm the only one who's faithful, I'm the only one who's zealous. They're all trying to kill me and I'm the last one left. And he said this all the way through. It's one of the prime things that he's discouraged about and he's worn down by that he thinks he's on his own. And then right at the end, God drops this fantastic little bomb and says, oh yeah, there's all your instructions. And by the way, there's actually your 7,001 because there's 7,000 people in Israel who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. There's 7,000 people in Israel who are faithful to me that you had no clue about. There's 7,000 people in Israel who are not worshiping a pagan king. You're not on your own. And I think that's very important, particularly when we're experiencing struggle and hardship in our own spiritual lives. It's so important that you don't struggle on your own. Because you may well find yourself complaining to God and he may be saying, there's brothers and sisters in Life Church. there's people here who know what you're going through, who've gone through it themselves and come out the other end, and they've sought me, and they can give you some really good support and encouragement and uplifting and fellowship out of that. It's going to really help you. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, I work in the police, um, and I, for the first two months or so, I really struggled. It's, it's a very difficult job. It's a very difficult place to work, and... I would talk to my wife and I'd talk to other, you know, my, my family about what had gone on. But what, was, what I found quite hard was I thought, like, it's a unique working environment. And I just don't think anyone really understands what it's like. I don't think anyone really gets so I can, I can talk and I can express and I can process out loud. But in my heart of hearts, it's like, I don't think anyone really understands what it's like. And I don't feel like I can go to anybody who understands what, I'm going through how dark it is, how miserable I feel, how much of a struggle it is. It's much better now, by the way, but it was at the time very difficult. And then one night, in, I went out in the pub with two of my close friends who are Christians, and I just decided to open up and just talk. And the encouragement and the support that they gave me was amazing. And I just thought, but because they don't understand my situation, because my situation's so unique, my situation is so much outside of the realm of what other people are going through and, and suffering that I can't share it, but I could. And I found myself, that was the beginning of a real thing of encouragement that's now brought me out to where I, I really actually enjoy my job and I'm having a good time with it. So the, the last encouragement for you is very, very simple, is do not suffer on your own. Don't go to God and say, I'm on my own because you're not on your own. And God may have someone there to say to you, look, go to this person, go to this person, go and talk to them. People are willing to listen, people are willing to love. Just go and explain to someone else, go and talk to someone else. So I'm just going to sum up the points here. 
Experiencing God in the spectacular alone won't grow or sustain us as Christians. We need to walk with God every day and have our heart and behavior change to be more like Jesus. God does comfort us. And when we're in a dark and discouraging place spiritually, we should also seek God's instruction and discover where he wants us to be and what he wants us to do. It may be the tiniest, most simple instruction that starts to pull you out of that dark spiritual place. It's not necessarily always about seeking a grand vision. It's not necessarily always about having this incredibly profound answer. Sometimes it's something so simple that's going to get you on that journey of getting out of that dark place and back to God. And we're not alone. Don't assume you're suffering through something alone. There is help and encouragement in having fellowship with brothers and sisters, sharing our trials and suffering alongside one another. Um, I can tell you now, I'm going to put this out there now, if anyone wants to come and talk to me about anything you feel you can't talk about, at the end of this service I will do my very best to listen. But I'm going to ask, is, does everyone in this room agree with that? And does everyone in this room agree at the end of this service, if there's anyone who wants to talk to anyone about anything that we can say that we're going to be the 7,000 faithful people and we're going to be there for people if they need help in a dark spiritual place pulling out. Amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com.